KPFA.org in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. And uh, we want to remind you uh, to uh, support KPFA, and uh, you can do that by going online to check our wonderful thank you gifts for uh, making sure that, uh, you know, we can keep this grassroots radio station alive. And uh, we just want to mention also that Cover to Cover will be up in just moments. And we want to mention that uh, Open Book will be uh, at you right now. Stay tuned. This is the Art of Survival. You're tuned to a Destination DIY documentary about the healing power of art. I'm Julie Sabatier. Most artists will tell you their financial survival doesn't depend on what they create. But art sustains them in another way. Whether it's writing or painting, making a collage or performing on stage, creative expression has the power to help us overcome hurdles and heal from trauma. There's something liberating about exercising your imagination and getting outside yourself. I, I just, I fall apart without some way to express myself. I, I just, it's like I don't exist, like somebody takes over and, and does everything for me, but I'm not really there, and I don't feel alive without art. I don't feel whole. This is Jill Hadoff. I'm Jill Hadoff. She's 19 years old. I tend to like acrylic, uh, mostly because it's more powerful, and my meanings tend to be about a lot of family and um, kind of relationships and love, and I don't quite think that a lot of other mediums can handle that kind of power, I guess. And... I love ceramics because you can take something that's, it's literally a lump of clay and turn it into something that people can use and so are my two mediums that I tend to love the best. I kind of lived without art for this past, I think, year and a half, two years just because I didn't feel like I had anything worth creating and that was probably the biggest reason that I no longer have a home. I pretty much let my life fall apart. My parents didn't want to see that. Jill is one of hundreds of kids her age who find art supplies and other resources at an organization called PEAR in downtown Portland. PEAR stands for Project Education Art Recreation. Pippa Arend co-founded PEAR in 2001 with two other women. She now works as the program manager. What we do is work with 15 to 24-year-old homeless and transitional young people through the tools of education, art, and recreation. And we run a GED program. We run an art program that's pretty extensive. We have a gallery, uh, and we go to many shows out in the community. Um, when we formed PEAR, what was really beautiful is seeing how my um, years of learning how to draw uh, was able to be turned into a way to communicate with youth. Because if a kid is in a place in their, in their life where they're sort of closed up, they will still be interested, if nothing else, in themselves. So by drawing a kid, it allows a sort of silent dialogue to take place where a kid will, will see an interest in them being developed and 
and may open up. So it's been uh, a route that I've been able to uh, reach out to some kids. Like many young people, Jill sees Pear as a lifeline. Do you, where do you live or do you have a one place? Shelter, a youth shelter. But before that, I was staying in hotels when I had the money and then um, staying in sex shops after the max stopped running those all-night sex shops and just kind of sleeping in the booths. We're staying at the airport. Yeah, it sucks. It really sucks. I put my soul into my work, and when I come up for air, I guess, my problems seem less daunting, less in my face, and I can kind of face the world again. I've never really had a lot of things in my life that were actually mine, and... It's a chance for me to kind of open my mind and, and instead of doing the same old thing every day, you know, it's just making something different, making life beautiful. There's beauty in everything and I get to make my own beauty. Jill worked on two paintings while she spoke to me in the Pear Gallery space. After applying vibrantly colored paint to a sheet of white paper, she dabbed her brushes on a wet paper towel. At first, I thought she was just cleaning them. Then she unrolled the paper and revealed a kind of tie-dyed pattern. A few days later, I got a card in the mail made from that same colorful paper. Jill says she gives away a lot of her art as gifts, while Max Chelberg um, Maxwell Chelberg sees art as more of a way of life. Uh, you can ask anybody that's really known me over the, like, my, the last 16 years or so of my life. And Art's pretty much all I do. Like, the only reason I carry a backpack is so if it rains, my sketchbook is safe. I never leave home without a sketchbook. Yeah. Sometimes I'll ride the Max for hours just so I can sit and sketch on it. Or I'll go sit in the mall. Yeah, art's pretty much all I do. It's, uh, hopefully I can make it off just art. I don't know, screw the day job. Max has shown his work in the Pear Gallery, as well as Backspace in Old Town and the Everett Street Lofts. And he's had some success selling his work. He draws monsters that are cuter than they are scary, adding colorful detail and sometimes a collage background cut from the pages of glossy magazines. Max says he even gets creative about asking people for spare change on the street, which he calls spanging. Um, yeah, when I was spanging, I would sit outside with a little sign instead of going up and invading people's direct personal space and the signs would usually say like we'll doodle for change or we'll do wookie calls for money I do jokes as well um, uh, I could just ramble about the cliche like broken home art salvation thing but I don't know really my imagination was just always there really vibrant continuously growing and like I feel about a sketchbook a month it's kind of ridiculous um, I don't know just I don't know your imagination's the one thing nobody can take from you so you just kind of do what you can with it and see who's interested Hannah Hicks doesn't have much interest in selling her work instead art serves as a constant in her otherwise chaotic life <laughs> 
tomorrow I'm getting kicked out. Um, my mom wants me to get emancipated. Um, I just have a lot of stress. And, like, I'm going to school to get my GD, and the classes are kind of hard. So, like, I'm the kind of person who hides all of this, and I, like, ignore all of it. And I just kind of, like, bottle it up inside. So, like, to express it in art is really helpful. My only goals for, or with my art, is to just have fun with it. Like, I don't really see myself selling any of my art. I mean, if I could, then that'd be awesome. But, like, unfortunately, I know that a lot of my friends that I have right now aren't always going to be there. They're not always going to be my friends. But art is my friend, and it's always going to be there. According to their website, Paris serves 350 young people like Max, Jill, and Hannah each year. Art is far from the only thing the organization offers, but it's essential to their mission of empowering kids and building their self-esteem. Again, Pippa Arend. It's hard to even separate art out from everything else that happens here at Pear. We see art, quite frankly, as a tool, as I mentioned, where it is great to have a beautiful piece of work on the wall or a sculpture or a painting, what have you. But really, the most important part of that art is the process taking off some of that, the psychological hardware that some of these kids need to develop in order to protect themselves out on the street. Uh, it's a process where um, they're able to step into uh, a, a deeper part of their psychology and do a little exploration. You're tuned to a Destination DIY special documentary about art and survival. I'm Julie Sabatier. We just heard how art has a profound effect on a group of kids, but adults can also benefit from a creative outlet. A few weeks ago, I traveled to Eugene, Oregon, to talk with people involved in the Lane Independent Living Alliance, also known as LILA. It's an organization run by people with disabilities for people with disabilities, working together for advocacy and empowerment. In addition to connecting people with services and doing voter outreach, the Lane Independent Living Alliance also offers acting classes. Longtime disability advocate B. Jo Ashwell works as a counselor at Lila. She helps people build their self-esteem through sketch comedy and improv theater. Johan Mueller, another Lila employee, acted in one of B. Jo's plays. If I'm wheeling down the street, I see a lot of people look at me and then look away, and they see someone in a wheelchair. Whereas if I'm an actor on stage, I see people look at me as a person, and the wheelchair is just something I sit in. Can you tell me a little bit more about what, um, what kinds of things you were doing in the, in the comedy skits? I was playing a person in a wheelchair who was kind of uh, an outcast and was bucking the system. Part of my character was I robbed a liquor store. I would have been clean if my tire hadn't gone flat. <laughs> 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 
couldn't hold me because their jail was not wheelchair accessible. And, I mean, it got a big laugh. <laughs> that th I can't be arrested because they can't put me in jail because they couldn't get me in the building. So accessibility was the joke, not wheelchair accessible. Most of the time, accessibility issues are anything but a joke for Johan. I have a genetic uh, disability that's called familial spastic paraparesis, which essentially is um, the nerves in my legs don't function properly. They, they fire sporadically, so I have tremors and I can't walk more than a few steps because um, the nerves in my legs don't work very well. In all honesty, I find accessibility challenges extremely frustrating. Um, when you cross the street and there's a curb, to most people it's a step. To me it's a wall, okay? If there are stairs to go into a building, even if there's one, it's a challenge to get in the building. And part of my job is to make sure that people who go to work have access to the building. His title is Disability Navigator and he helps other people with limited mobility access employment services in Eugene. Being on stage and acting has helped me be a better public speaker. Just to stand up in front of somebody and say, here's what I do, and not be self-conscious, and not be embarrassed about what I have to say. Acting has also helped Johan to accept his disability. I've been in the wheelchair for five years, five and a half. Um, I was fully mobile and able to walk and had a full-time job when I started to trip and fall down and I didn't know why. Um, for a long time, I was what BJO likes to term militant independent. Um, if someone would hold a door open for me, I would get mad. I mean, this is, I can do it myself, so I don't need your help. And being in the wheelchair and, and the acting has all just helped me be who I want to be. Being with a, a bunch of people who share um, the commonality of having a disability, doing the same things that everyone else does, um, it, it's kind of a shared experience. So it's helped me realize that I'm not alone. I mean, everybody does this. Linda Diaz, who also works for Lila, had a similar experience. Um, hi, my name's Linda Diaz, and I'm the Hard of Hearing and Deaf Coordinator here for Hard of Hearing and Deaf Services at Lila, and I also run the vestibular uh, support group, which is for people who have the disability of vertigo and dizziness and balance disorders. I am both hard of hearing, and I also have a balance disorder. Um, can you explain a little bit about a, what a balance disorder is for people who might not know? Yes. Um, in our inner ear, we have a little uh, place called the labyrinth of all names. It's very complicated in our inner ear. Your uh, vestibular system or your labyrinth area is your um, navigator and the control of where you are up and down in space. Without that working, I, for all I know, I could be standing upside down right now. 
So I was very afraid to get up on that stage in that in that position of being in front of everybody and just afraid that I'd have a vertigo attack in front of everyone. And once that happens, I'm sort of like a a standing mushroom. I can't think or talk. Well, and so how did you overcome that fear? Well, humor was such a big part of it. I think we do a lot of laughing at ourselves uh, in the plays and here at work. We have to laugh. If we're not laughing, we're crying. And crying, although needed, we need to do as we go through our depression, we do have recurring depression because especially with hearing loss, you, know, you get a little bit less, you get a little bit less, it's another loss. You do mourn those losses. And that's okay. But by using humor, it makes everything better. Um, it's fun to laugh at ourselves. It's fun to show people that, hey, we're just people in funny bodies that just don't work the same as yours, but we still are the same as you. You're tuned to a Destination DIY documentary about art and survival. I'm Julie Sabatier. Artistic expression can help people overcome all kinds of physical challenges. For people in prison, visual art offers a way to reach out and connect to the wider world. Adrienne Fritz became intimately familiar with the healing power of creativity when she volunteered to start an art therapy program at Coffee Creek Correctional Facility. Coffee Creek is a women's prison located in Wilsonville, Oregon. Adrienne, who worked a day job as an advertising executive, created a workshop she called Empty and Meaningless, The Box Project. She invited each woman to decorate an empty paper box. The inside of the box would remain empty, serving as a symbolic place to house their emotions. She explained that the outside of the box represented a problematic relationship in the women's lives. One side of the box is about the breakdown in the relationship, the thing that they think doesn't work, and one side of the box is what they their dream relationship with that person, and the other four they just explore. Doesn't they could do whatever they want, um, and so it ends up being a, a, a transformation of those two ideas that they had that they were so attached to both the negative and the positive, but you're still attached to it, which limits you. And all of a sudden, they're exploring on the other four sides so they can see something way beyond just those two interpretations of how life should be. And what medium or what media do you use um, when you're doing the box project? Oh, gosh, we had materials, laces that people had donated to the project and um, tissue papers, different colors, tissue paper. And then I would go and buy art papers, so like rice paper or just different beautiful papers for them to use. And we use glitter glue. Um, we, we did glitter early on, the, the dry glitter, but that's contraband in prison. And they would um, put a little bit of the glitter into either their pocket or their bag or something like that, and um, we got in trouble. Before bringing out the art supplies, Adrian had the women write out some of their thoughts and feelings. It helps people to kind of get down from the mind and start to connect to the heart because you start to feel the you start to feel empowered or you start to feel the sadness that's related to a disconnect in a relationship or you start to feel real shame or real regret. Um, all of those things. And that's what we then take into the next section, which is the art. Adrian says art has helped her to overcome traumas in her own life, and that's only part of the reason she felt a strong connection to the women at Coffee Creek. 
I come from an impoverished background. I was raised on the reservation. Um, I'm neither white nor Native American, and so I spent a lot of my time fighting, um, defending myself as a human being. And so um, a lot of the same kinds of um, ingredients that make up my life made up the lives of these people who were incarcerated. I can identify with them, and they can identify directly with my stories, and they can see what I've been able to do um, by being willing to, to, um, to take apart all those bits, those beliefs, those systems that I have inside of me that are really debilitating um, and use art in a way to help me creatively express all of those things to get down to really asking for and then getting what I need. At first, she worked with a half dozen women at a time, and soon word spread at Coffee Creek, and more and more women asked to be part of the workshop. And pretty soon, um, I was just there for a year and a half and worked with so many women because it really made such a big difference, um, not just for individuals, but it also brought them together as a community, which is darn near impossible in prison. Um, they just come in with their own stuff. But there's a moment in every single workshop where I'm looking at the room. So it could be 10 people or it could be 70 people. And I have had 70 people in some of these workshops. And what happens is there's a moment where everyone collectively gets that they're not alone. And you can see like a wave of understanding. It's almost like seeing a heat wave above uh, the ocean. It's a wave that goes across the room as individuals get that they're not alone that is not the end of the world, that there really is something bigger and brighter and better out there. And that um, it's just, I have no words for the feeling. Uh, When that happens, it's so visceral. It's right in your face. You can't ignore it. Um, And it changes everybody. It's, It's really incredible. Jackie, who asked that I not reveal her last name, was one of the women who participated in the Box Project. My name is Jackie, and I'm a 36-year-old single mom. I have two kids, a son that's 15 and a half who lives with me, and a daughter who is 10 and a half and lives with her dad in Montana. She's back on the outside now, but she spent two years behind bars after a DUI car accident, which left her passenger severely injured. I lost control of the car and hit a power pole. I was ejected from the car through the driver's side window, and his seatbelt broke, and he landed in the driver's seat and broke his neck in two places and is partially paralyzed. Yeah. Um, so how many times did you do Adrian's workshop? Well, while I was incarcerated, I think I did Adrian's workshop probably about three times, I think is what it was. And how was it different for you each time? Well, the first time was the hardest um, because the box I did was against um, my addiction. And then I did boxes for each one of my kids, but each box was different. Like with my son, I had a broken clock, which for me represented um, time that had been broken or time that had been stopped because our time together had stopped um, when I was incarcerated. And then um, I can't remember what else I had. I do remember the broken clock, though. That was very significant for me with him because I'd lost a lot of time with him. The Box Project workshop had a profound effect on Jackie and the other women at Coffee Creek. And I was able to let go of a lot of things 
and after that I felt a lot better and a little more human. Along the way, something unexpected started to happen for Adrian as well. When you start to facilitate something like this, um, the lies that you tell yourself about your life start to get stripped away. Um, and I don't think there's anything you can do to stop it because you've made a commitment. I mean, I, I remember the day it was about halfway into, so about six, seven months into um, working out there at Coffee Creek. And I was driving home from Wilsonville and I just started weeping and I just couldn't stop. I was just weeping. And uh, I realized that these women were taking my encouragement and they were doing what I wasn't doing. They were pursuing their dreams. They were taking the risks that they needed to take to change their lives um, and really start to create the life of their dreams. And I was going back home to prepare to go to some meeting or fly to Asia or the East Coast to do this advertising gig. And I was it just, it was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And so the biggest influence um, I think that they had over me was seeing that I was a hypocrite. And um, I walked into my boss's office, I think it was the Monday after, Monday or Tuesday after, and I gave him my resignation and said, we've got a year to replace me. And we took it took a year to replace me. Um, but it was great to know that I was leaving and I was going to be pursuing something that really mattered to me versus trying to survive. Even at that level, you're still trying to survive. Adrian took time away from her work at Coffee Creek to build up the gallery and artist resource center she now runs called Working Artists. She says she hopes to return to Coffee Creek in fall. Because I really miss it. Seeing these women take on life so fully in a situation where most of us would just curl up in a corner and not want to participate at all with life was absolutely inspirational. And I'm very grateful to them for the risks that they took in being part of this program and then really embracing it to the degree that I was there for so long, for a year and a half, and I got to work with so many women. Um, they all changed my life, every single one of them. So I thank them, too. Creative expression is a powerful, positive force. Jill, Max, and Hannah rely on art to help them cope with life on the streets. Performing comedy skits made it easier for Linda and Johan to accept and even celebrate themselves with an audience. Adrian and Jackie's lives will never be the same. All of them are living proof that the process of making something can be just as life-altering as the hardships that inspired it in the first place. Thanks for tuning in to this Destination DIY special documentary. I'm Julie Sabatier, and I recorded all the interview material and produced it with help from Brian Kramer. B. Jo Ashwell provided the recording of her play, which was taped at the Wow Hall in Eugene by Steve Brenner. D. May Roberts provided editorial assistance. And Jason Leonard composed additional music for this documentary special. Funding for this Destination DIY documentary was provided by a project grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Marianne Naylor built our website. If you want to find out more about PEAR, 
visit them online at parementor.org. You can find the Lane Independent Living Alliance at lilaoregon.org. Many of the boxes from Adrian Fritz's project are on display at her studio. To find out more, visit workingartistsonline.com. Artistic expression has helped people to deal with and overcome challenges in their lives. People sharing their life-altering experiences through therapeutic art workshops. Finding empowerment through sketch comedy and improv theater. Escaping from the harsh realities of the streets through art. You've been listening to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. Thanks to all that have participated in our summer friend raiser. Just in case you missed it, there's still time to become a member and a friend of KPFA by going to our website, www.kpfa.org. Thanks for listening. Sunday, July 27th, 10.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., the Rock Reborn Hunger Festival. Feed the needy and it's a benefit for the Dunsmer Hellman Estate. Ten cans of food are $10. Featuring the Summer of Love Review with costume music tributes to Hendrix, Zeppelin, Steppenwolf, The Who, Jefferson Airplane, The Doors, Janis Joplin and the Mamas and Papas. Also featuring the unauthorized Rolling Stones, Just Cream, Zebop, The Santana, Driving That Train is Grateful Dead, The Newcastles is The Animals, and the classic rockers Medicine Man. Wear your hippie clothes at the Dunsmer Hellman Estate, 2960 Peralta Oaks Court in Oakland. You're tuned to listener-sponsored radio, 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's coming close to 3.30. Stay tuned now for Free Speech Radio News.